0: Thank you, Josh. Uh, and hello to everyone this morning. Hello to everyone at home as well that uh, may be listening in from there. Uh, as Josh said, we're continuing on this series uh, on the Scriptures that shape us. And I have to admit that the, the only problem with having a whole Bible to choose from when you're coming to prepare a sermon is that, like, there's a whole Bible to choose from. Um, where where do you start with all that? Fortunately, I do get two cracks at this during this series, so I don't have to do it all uh, this morning. Um, but I'm going to start uh, with... Daniel chapter 1 as the scripture that I've chosen to go through this morning. Now, for me, that's a little bit unexpected. It's not necessarily the first place I would have gone. It's not the scripture that I wrote down when when Josh gave us the opportunity to do that a couple of weeks ago. Pretty sure no one wrote the whole of Daniel chapter 1 on the sheet over there. Uh, But in a funny kind of way, it has been one of those scriptures that that has shaped me for a couple of different reasons. Um, Firstly, because I've always been a little bit fascinated by... Those stories in the Old Testament that we just kind of pass off as Sunday school stories. You know, we put them in the realm of, uh, you know, they're for the kids' Bibles and they're more for the children than they are for the grown-ups. Uh, Often those kinds of stories in the Old Testament, you know, whether it's the flood or whether it's David and Goliath or the stories in Daniel, uh, we tend to minimise them down to just like a, a moral principle at the end of the story, while we ignore the historical and cultural context that's going on at the time. And my contention is this, with a lot of those stories, they've actually got something really profound to teach us if we look at them with a fresh set of eyes. So that's the first reason I was drawn to, to Daniel chapter one. And secondly, was because I've always been drawn to the exilic period of Old Testament history. Now that sounds really nerdy, doesn't it? He can nod your head. Yes. Yeah, he does. Yeah. But I don't mean that in a particularly nerdy way. It's because it's a period of history that records God's people, people of faith, who have got themselves into the worst possible scenario. Uh, They've been captured, they've been defeated, they've been hauled off into exile as this minority group people living in Babylon. And they've got to try and figure out during this period of history what it looks like to live as people of faith in a culture that is big, that's powerful and that's often hostile. And when I think about what we live in in our current cultural moment as, as people of faith, as Christians trying to live out our faith as like a cultural minority in a sense, this is our challenge as well, isn't it? As people of faith, we're certainly not in the majority anymore. We live as a faithful minority in our culture, trying to figure out what does it mean for us to live faithfully in that kind of world. And for that reason, I'm always drawn to this period of Old Testament history. And I just love the stories of Daniel. I love the, the stories of, you know, the, the fiery furnace and the, the lion's den, but I'm not going there this morning. I'm going to start in Daniel chapter 1. So I want us to look at this together. Part of this series is to, is to get us to look at Scripture with a fresh set of eyes. So I would love for you, if you've got your phone, God forbid a physical Bible might turn up, but if you've got a physical Bible or a phone, I'd love for you to turn to Daniel chapter 1 in the Old Testament. And I want us, I'm going to read this whole story out to us, and then we're just going to unpack a little a bit of it this morning. So let's have a look. Daniel chapter 1. I'll give you just a second to get there. All right, are we ready? Let's go. Daniel chapter 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles of the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put, the treasure house, and put in the treasure house of his God. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, king of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility, young men without any physical defect, Handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. So just pause there for a second. This is the best of the best that they're taking in, the best of the best of the Israelites. He was to teach them the language and the literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They would be trained for three years, and after that, they were to enter the king's service. "'Among those who were chosen were some from Judah, "'Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. "'The chief official gave them new names, "'to Daniel, the name Belteshazzar, "'to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, "'and to Azariah, Abednego. "'But Daniel resolved not to defile himself "'with the royal food and wine, "'and he asked the chief official for permission "'not to defile himself this way. "'Now God had caused the official "'to show favour and compassion to Daniel.' But the official told Daniel, I'm afraid of my lord, the king, who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men your age? The king would then have my head because of you. Daniel then said to the guard, whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael and Azariah, please test your servants for 10 days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Something my kids have never said. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So we agreed to this and tested them for 10 days. At the end of the 10 days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the other young men who ate at the royal court. So the guard took away their choice food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. <laughs> Poor fellas. Imagine being there. Anyway. To these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. And Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. At the end of the time set by the king to bring them into his service, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them, and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's service. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. And Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. So our challenge this morning is, how do we understand this curious little story about Daniel and his three mates and this confrontation over food? Maybe it's simple. There's certainly people out there that think it's pretty simple. Um, I've got some vision here of a number of books from um, a few years ago about uh, the Daniel diet that came out. I'm not sure. um, And look, if you followed the Daniel diet, uh, you know, no judgments on you. That's completely fine. But there was this plethora of books that came out about the Daniel diet, uh, obviously offering the benefits of a vegan diet for your health and fitness. Um, I love those last two, Lose Weight God's Way. Uh, and the Daniel fast made delicious. not sure about that one. Um, But you get the picture. We can simplify a story like this down to simply, well, they must have eaten a good diet and that must be good for us as well. We kind of pluck this story out of the Old Testament and we make a simple moral principle and we say, go for it. But surely there's more to this story than just the benefits of vegan living, isn't there? I hope so. So let's dig into this story a little bit more and see where we find ourselves. Because my contention again, my really firm belief is that as we seek as God's people to live faithfully as a cultural minority in our current cultural moment, this story has much to teach us about the idea that we can't afford to lose that which makes us distinctive. We can't afford to lose that which makes us distinctive. Because if we think about the story that we've just read, basically it is an insight into the Babylonian playbook for how they're going to take over the world. They've surrounded Jerusalem, they've got control of the Israelite king, and they have handpicked the very best of the young Israelite men to take them back to Babylon. And once they're there, they're given new names, they're given new language, they're introduced to a new culture. In essence, what the Babylonians are trying to do is take these fine young Israelite men and turn them into Babylonians. And think about it, what better way of subduing your enemy than to take the finest people and to make them your own? That's the way they're going about it. The problem is, for these young Israelite men, is that that meant giving up everything that made them distinctive. It meant giving into a system of religion and a system of values that were diametrically opposed to their faith in God. And believe me, the temptation was there. In Babylon, this culture was big and bold and prosperous and impressive. Their religious festivals were huge huge, and their idols were grandiose. It kind of reminds me a little bit of when myself and Jane first moved to Sydney uh, back in the early two thousands, you know, we we're both born and bred in South Australia, and there we were moving to Sydney, and you know, there were some challenges to start with. The number one football code is rugby league. It took me a long time to try and reconcile that. There's no pasties in Sydney. Um, funnily enough, I had just had a, I was telling a story with a group of people um, in Sydney just a few weeks ago, and it mentioned Port Elliot Bakery, as I often do, and the pasties associated with that, and they had no idea what I was talking about. The shame. Terrible. Anyway, we're in Sydney, surrounded by, you know, as South Australians, surrounded by this kind of big, bold, impressive culture. Many people that live in Sydney, and apologies if you're from Sydney, but many people that live in Sydney are kind of Sydno-centric. They they kind of don't believe that anything important happens outside of Sydney. And so it was very easy for us as people from Adelaide to go over and be swept up by that kind of culture. We had to work really hard to make sure we held on in a sense to our South Australian heritage, uh, to make sure we kept saying plant instead of plant and to give answers instead of answers and things like that. We had to hold on to our heritage. And this was the challenge before these young Israelite men in Babylon. They had this impressive culture. They had these idols that were paraded through the streets on a regular basis. The challenge or the temptation to conform to that kind of culture was right in their face all the time. And in many respects, the pressure that we face as people of faith to conform to our prevailing culture might not be as in your face as it was for these young men in Babylon There's not too many people that are forcing us to bow down to idols in the street. But the danger of being swallowed up by our prevailing culture is just as real. I came across an article, a fascinating article, um, during last year in the aftermath of uh, the controversy around uh, Carl Lenz, the pastor of Hillsong, New York. Uh, He got caught up in some moral failure and a whole bunch of controversy, ends up leaving Hillsong, New York. Uh, And because he was mixed with Justin Bieber and a whole bunch of celebrities, uh, there was a whole bunch of commentary around his exit from Hillsong, New York. And one of the articles that was written was an article, um, I'll just bring the quote up on here, it was called The Sad Irony of Celebrity Pastors, written by a guy called Ben Sixsmith. Now, Ben is not a Christian. So he was writing this as an outsider looking in. Uh, But some of the commentary he made, I found quite fascinating. Like he talked about, obviously, the controversy around Carl and all that kind of stuff. Uh, But he then went on to kind of look more broadly uh, at people of faith in our current cultural moment. And he kind of summed a whole bunch of the things he was saying up by this little phrase of with a twist of Christianity. I just want you to listen to a couple of things that he says. He said it seems to represent what I call the with a twist of Christianity trend. There's mainstream, so he's talking about the church here. There's mainstream culture, celebrities, fashion, music, modish political activism, and a message of self-love, but with a twist of Christianity. Most people stick with mainstream culture because they can have all those things and premarital sex. So if Christianity is such an inessential add-on, why become a Christian? I'm not religious, so it's not my place to dictate to Christians what they should and shouldn't believe. Still, if someone has a faith worth following, I feel that their belief should make me feel uncomfortable for not doing so. If they share 90% of my lifestyle and values, then there's nothing especially inspiring about them. Instead of making me want to become more like them, it looks very much as if they want to become more like me. It's pretty confronting stuff, isn't it? To read that as someone that's kind of written that from the outside looking in at the church as commentary, it's pretty confronting. And it reinforces to us, just like Daniel chapter 1, that as we faithfully attempt to kind of live in our current cultural moment, we can't afford to lose that which makes us distinctive. Because if we do, we risk losing our witness in the world, and what does that mean? What does it mean to not lose our distinctiveness? Well, there's probably lots of answers to that, and I don't have all the answers up here this morning either. But one thing it certainly doesn't mean is that that we're supposed to cut ourselves off from the rest of the world. That's not what we're called to. We're called to engage with our culture. And an attitude of escape—that is, I just won't have anything to do with our prevailing culture—an attitude of escape is just as dangerous as an attitude of just uncritical embrace. And it's not just the stuff that we don't do, although it is sometimes. Equally, it's about the things that we commit ourselves to. But if we don't have a different ethic when it comes to sex or money or or power, if we're not distinctive in our self-giving love, our kindness, our treatment of those who are marginalised in our world, and we just end up blending in with everyone else, don't we? It's just life with a twist of Christianity. And perhaps the greatest ploy our enemy has in our Western culture, in our current cultural moment, is that we just end up looking like everyone else. We're not distinctive in any way. But our lives, according to Titus chapter 2, Are supposed to be an ornament to the gospel. And that's old language, but that passage goes on to say that we, our lives, are to make the message of Jesus attractive. We're an ornament to the gospel. How are we going to be an ornament to the gospel if we don't look in any way distinctive? And it's a challenge for every single one of us. It would be easy at times to kind of throw our hands up in the air and just get swallowed up by the radical individualism of our culture and just live every moment for ourselves. But our calling is to be set apart. Our calling is to be distinctive, is to follow Jesus, to follow His pattern of self-giving love for the sake of the world. We're set apart. We're distinctive by being more loving and more forgiving and more compassionate and more generous and more self-sacrificial than our prevailing culture tells us that we should be. We can't afford to lose that which makes us distinctive. And as we do that, the second part of what Daniel chapter one, I think, teaches us, teaches me, teaches us profoundly is as we go about doing that, we can't afford to lose sight of the fact that God is still in control. Despite the way it looks sometimes, God is still in control. And this is what the second half of the story starts to to pick up. Determined not to cave in to the Babylonian culture completely, Daniel decides to make a stand over the issue of food. Now, why food? I can't be 100% sure. Like they took on names that were kind of attributed to Babylonian gods. They did the study. They they did a whole bunch of other things in blending in with the Babylonian culture. But they made a stand over food. Perhaps it was because the food had been offered to Babylonian idols and it was like an indirect act of worship if they ate the food. Maybe. But for whatever reason, Daniel made a stand over this particular issue. And for that reason, he devises this simple little test. For 10 days, you let the other guys feast on all the royal food and drink all the royal wine they can possibly imagine but give us nothing but rations of veggies and water and let's see who comes out looking best at the end of those 10 days. And lo and behold, what happens? Daniel and his three mates look better nourished than anyone else. And again, it just at surface level appears like this little confrontation over food but that's just at surface level. There's something much, much bigger going on here there was actually something greater at stake. This wasn't just a test for Daniel. This was a test of the gods. This was a test of who was really in control. And it kind of reminds me uh, of that moment for a parent. And I say this as someone that's going through this right now. This moment as a parent when you realise that your kids are bigger, faster, it's really hurting me to say this, they're bigger, faster, stronger and better than you are. Now, not better at everything. Please, boys, hear me this, not better at everything. But if we were to go outside and have a 100-metre race, I would finish third. Yes, uh, definitely. Uh, There are certain things that the boys are now better than me at. And I had one of these moments uh, when I was younger, if I just flip this to myself and my dad, I had one of these moments when I was younger. I, I'd finished school, but I was still living at home, so I was kind of 19 or 20 at the time. And my dad decided to buy one of those, you know, quite sizable table, table soccer tables for the, the front room. And in the first few weeks we had that thing, we must have played it just hundreds of times. And the greatest thing was, as a 19-year-old, is that I won like 99.9% of the time. It was just the best thing ever. But you have to understand, these, for me, in my mind at least, these weren't just simple games of table soccer. There was actually something more significant going on. It was about a changing of the guard. It was about a changing status of father and son Uh, Because like many parents, when I was just a little tacker, I would go out and play sport against my dad. And my dad was and actually probably still is quite a good tennis player. And so we'd go out and play tennis and you know what it's like as a little kid, you're doing your best. And your dad occasionally would let you win just to kind of keep you interested. But he was the one that was in control of that situation. But now, around the table soccer table... The tables had turned uh, and I was now the one that was in control. I was the one who decided when I should show pity. And do you think that happened very often? Not a chance. But I was in control. It wasn't just about the table soccer. It was a whole paradigm shift. And that's what it was like in Babylon. This wasn't just a simple test over food. But there was an overarching test of whose God was actually more powerful. Who was in control? And the result not only vindicates the the faith of Daniel and his mates, but also shows that it was God and not the king, and not the king of Babylon's gods who was actually in control, despite the way it looked. And you've got to understand, it looked really bad. They'd been defeated, they'd been captured, they'd been hauled off into exile. They would parade these massive idols through the streets every day. It looked really, really bad. It looked like they had lost. But despite the way that it looked, their God was still in control. And you can imagine how important that must have been for the Israelites at the time who were facing this crisis of faith about whether their God was even powerful enough or whether He was good enough to save them from their predicament. They felt alone. They felt disillusioned. They felt like the battle had been lost. And into that context comes these stories that reminds them that despite what they see, despite what they feel, God was in control. They could still trust Him despite what it looked like. And so these stories, I think, weren't just incredibly important for the ongoing faith of Israel, but they're incredibly important for us in our cultural moment. Because I think it's easy enough at times for us also to look around at our world and our prevailing culture and just wonder whether God has left us to our own devices. Now, to give you an extreme example, as I was writing this this week, I was reminded of a... A scene, quite a dramatic scene in the movie Blood Diamond. Have, have you seen that? Leonardo DiCaprio was a, a diamond smuggler in Africa. Anyone? Oh, we've got a couple. Oh, my boys have seen it as well. Uh, so, Blood Diamond. So, here's Leonardo. He's a, he's a diamond smuggler in Africa. He, li- he obviously works in quite a brutal industry. Uh, and he's got a quiet, reflective moment one night where he reflects on all of the violence that he's seen. Uh, all the blood that's been spilt, not just in around the diamonds, but across the continent of Africa itself. And he has this reflective moment where he says, sometimes I wonder, will God ever forgive us for what we've done to each other? And then I look around and realise God left this place a long time ago. And that was his reflection as someone that looked around the world, his world at the time, and thought, how could God even be present in this moment? And I think for all of us living in Western culture in 2022, wherever we are, we all have those moments ourselves where we start to think the world is so out of control. Where is God in all of that? Maybe God left this place a long time ago. The dominant value systems of our world, whether it's narcissism, it's all about me, hedonism, it's all about pleasure, or materialism, it's all about the stuff that I gather around me, they seem to have control of our cultural moment. Bad news just seems to invade every moment of every day, whether it's our own personal lives or on a global scale. Life can feel unpredictable and out of control. And in all of that, the Christian faith just seems to be pushed more and more to the margins of society. I'm sure you saw some of the commentary about census results over the last few weeks, that the number of people that are ticking the box to be people of faith, the number of people turning up to church on a Sunday just seems to get less and less and less. It seems like the faith is getting pushed more to the margins of our society. It can feel, at least, like the battle is lost, like we're losing it. Where is God in all of that? The good news is that God's sovereignty and God's control doesn't depend on how we feel. And it doesn't depend on how things look from the outside. Just because we get a little bit disillusioned at times and just because we can't see it in every moment, God is still sovereign, God is still in control. And that's what these stories in Daniel were reminding the Israelites. And that's why they are still in our Bible to remind us today that despite the way we feel, despite the way it looks sometimes, we can trust God because He is in control. And the reality is, and other parts of the Bible reflect this, all of these other things will eventually come to nothing. One of my favourite things to do, Brad will understand this, my favourite things to do, it's, it's tarnished with a few negative memories, um, is go to the, the Angkor Wat temples in Cambodia. Now, that has to be the hottest place in the world, and I used to take school students there every year. So it got a bit tedious going back to the temples every year and sweating it out there. Uh, but it is an amazing place that, uh, this is in Cambodia, it's a reflection of the mighty Khmer Empire, uh, which was around, you know, 1,000 years ago. Uh, and some of those temples, you go now to one particular temple, Ta uh, it was where, what was that movie, uh, Angeline Jolie? Tomb Raider, where Tomb Raider was filmed, anyway. Um, it's an amazing place because it was once this incredible temple, uh, you know, with ornate carvings and jewels in the walls and, like, it was amazing. The Khmer Empire was just enormous. And you go there now and it is, it's a beautiful rubble in a sense You know, you've got, it's all fallen apart. These beautiful trees have grown up through the walls of the temple. But basically the jungle has come and taken over what was once a beautiful temple. It's just a little reminder that all the kingdoms of the world eventually crumble, but God is still in control. And Isaiah chapter 40 beautifully articulates this. If you wanna go back and read this later on, Isaiah chapter 40, again, set in this same period of history, reflects this beautiful, Reality, that the kingdoms of the world, the dominant value systems of the world, are like a drop in a bucket or dust on the scales, Isaiah 40 calls it. They will come and go. We know that the Babylonian empire came and went. The dominant systems of our world will come and go. But God remains sovereign. He is still in control. And we can still trust Him, despite the way it looks sometimes. And often despite the way it That we feel. The question for us is as we finish up, is in whom will we place our trust this morning? Remember what Jesus says in uh, the book of John? He says, In this world you will have trouble. It's almost like a promise. In this world you will have trouble, you're gonna suffer, things will be difficult. Life will get complex. You will look around and you will wonder where God is in those moments. But Jesus says, take heart for I've overcome the world. We can place our trust in God even still because Jesus has overcome the world. So as we go out this morning, as we think about who we are as a community, in what, in who will we place our trust? How are we gonna go out and live our lives in such a way that we become an ornament to the gospel. We can make the message of Jesus attractive for the people that we meet. And how are we gonna demonstrate that trust in God, even in the difficult moments in life?